This week, the Comics Guys explain the Summers family. Yes. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, this time, we'll be going over an oft-requested subject, uh, which is the Summers family. Uh, that is the family that really starts, I guess, the first person would be Cyclops. Um, at least with the order that the comics came out. So, uh, Darren, why don't we? Where do we start talking about the Summers family? Well, that's kind of a key point, right? Like, it's it, most of what you can look up online tells stuff in like the actual kind of like chronological order in the story, and that's super confusing. So, what we're going to do here is go through it in the order in which readers found out about things, right? So, it'll kind of you know like duplicate the effect of having been a fan for fifty or sixty years or whatever, right? So, it's we'll we'll reveal like you know what happened. Uh, in the order it was revealed, not in the order in which it like happens in the story. So we start with X-Men number one. Um, it's uh, 1963. Marvel has had you know multiple successes in a row with its various you know like new titles that it's been releasing over the last couple of years. And Stan and Jack, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, come up with this idea of a uh, a superhero school. Basically, right? Like this would be the interesting, uh, you know, kind of like plot. It would feature, you know, a guy who is teaching young superheroes, you know, to use their powers and and come together. That would be like an excuse to have a teen team together. And Stan fully admits that he invented the idea of uh, mutants uh, in the Marvel universe specifically because he was sick of coming up with origins all the time. Um, he'd kind of like run out of good ideas for origins. So the whole idea of like, oh, they were born with their powers. Uh, you know, seemed much easier to him. And so, like, that was going to be the premise of how these kids came together. And so in that first issue, we meet the original team of the X-Men, um, which is, uh, you know, Angel, Beast, Iceman, and the two that we're going to kind of focus on here today, which would be uh, Cyclops and Marvel Girl. Cyclops is introduced to us as Slim Summers. We don't learn his name is actually Scott until the third issue. Uh, everybody just calls him Slim for the first two issues. Um, and he has uh, the uh, remarkable power of, uh, you know, firing beams of energy out of his eyes um, that are incredibly destructive. And uh, he's very good at aiming them and that sort of thing. And he's, you know, going to be the team leader. Um, and we discover that, uh, in fact, the reason he has to wear this visor to protect everybody because he can't turn his powers off. Right, like it's as long as his eyes are open, this energy blast is coming out. So he has to wear special sunglasses or a special visor uh, to protect everybody from, you know, his his beams injuring basically everything that he looked at. Um, so, you know, this is a classic kind of, you know, Stanley uh, uh, defective hero, right? Like a character who is, uh, you know, his his powers uh, come with some sort of, you know, problem, basically some sort of, uh, you know, like recurring issue that he's going to have to deal with physically, like, you know, Tony Stark's bad heart and that sort of thing, or, or Daredevil being blind. And then we are introduced to Marvel girl, Jean Grey. And uh, Jean has uh, telekinetic powers. She can move things with her mind. And at first, these powers are super weak because Stan is very sexist. Um, and, you know, basically all she can do is kind of like float some rocks around. Um, and she is basically on the team in those early issues to provide a, a romantic triangle, right? That it's going to be Scott and Warren, uh, who is the angel, uh, are going to be kind of, you know, competing for Jean's affections. And Scott will, of course, always kind of like feel that Warren is much flashier and much more handsome and that sort of thing. And he's like expects to lose 
and doesn't feel because of his responsibility as leader that he can be too entirely honest with Gene about his feelings. So he tries to kind of like keep them to himself. And that's, you know, yet another source of like angst in these early stories is that Scott cannot confess his love for Gene and is, you know, sad that Warren keeps, uh, you know, sweeping her, sweeping her off her feet. Uh, over the course of the next several years, X-Men never really qu quite catches on. Right, like it's always sells decently. It's reasonably popular. Jack doesn't is not that interested in it, and he leaves the art chores for it very early. It gets turned over to several other people in the bullpen. Um, but Stan keeps writing it for several years, and it's always you know Marvel's fifth or sixth or seventh best title kind of thing as far as sales go. So like nobody's that interested, but it's got a you know fan base. And uh, over the course of those early stories. Stan tells us a bunch. We meet the families of the other members of the X-Men, right? We meet uh, Gene's family. We meet Warren's family. We meet Bobby's family, etc. But all we learn about Scott is that he's an orphan. And we never get any real kind of like details about that, about how that worked or like what happened to his parents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's just he was in an orphanage and, you know, went from the orphanage to uh, the Xavier School basically. And we never really get any details for the first three or four years of the character of like explaining it any farther than that. Um, starting in 1967, Roy Thomas comes in as the new writer and it is notable to him when he's kind of like taking it over as he's taking over, you know, several of like Stan's less favorite titles, uh, you know, as being kind of like second in command editorially in the, in, in the bullpen that uh, Stan has really done very little as far as uh, fleshing out the backgrounds of these characters. And Roy says, well, that's kind of interesting. Like, you know, what, where, where did they come from? What's their backstory? And so throughout 1967, he starts dividing the issues of X-Men into two stories. The first story in every issue is the modern adventure. And then there'll be a backup feature that's only six or eight pages in the back of the book that will tell the story of how each member of the X-Men came to join the X-Men. Right. Um, and so the first one of those he does is Scott because Scott is so mysterious. We don't know anything about him. We haven't you know, met any, any relatives or anything. And so Roy tells the story of how Scott winds up. Uh, he, he's in uh, an orphanage. His parents have apparently died in a plane crash. We don't know, again, any details. And that's like such a, you know, uh, obvious kind of like lead-in point, right? Like no superhero's parents die in a plane crash that wasn't mysteriously involving supervillains or something, right? Like that's such a kind of, you know, of course we're going to hear more about that eventually, but Roy doesn't have anything yet more for it. He's more interested in Scott as a kid. And so he tells the story of how uh, Scott is, uh, his powers first manifest, uh, you know, while he's in the orphanage in an accident where he uses his powers accidentally um, to nearly cause a construction accident, like a, a construction site. He basically like damages a crane with his, with his energy blast and has to save the crew, uh, save the kids and the, the surrounding people um, and basically gets chased off uh, and uh, then is adopted basically not officially or anything, but it's kind of like taken in by another mutant called Jack Winters uh, is his real name, and he becomes known as the Living Diamond, and his power is that uh, you know his, he can make his skin diamond hard. And with Scott as uh, you know, kind of like a partner, uh, unwillingly, um, Jack sees you know the use of his powers and decides to uh, uh, use Scott to help him commit crimes, to help him rob banks and stuff, basically. 
And it's then that Professor X encounters him um, when he when Professor X is opposing the the, uh, the Living Diamond uh, in in battle, and uh, Scott basically makes a you know face turn, turns on the guy who was controlling him, and joins Professor X in defeating him. And that uh, Xavier then says, "Okay, Scott, congratulations! You are now the first student at my academy, right? I'm bringing you in uh, to uh, you know to to join my class, and you will lead my team of young heroes." Um, it is then revealed when we get to Gene's stories, which are several months later, right? Like we tell Scott's story and then we tell Bobby's story. They kind of like go in team order. The last one of these backup features is the one about Gene, in which we learn that Jean, uh, her powers had manifested much younger as a, as a little kid, and that she was playing outside with a friend of hers um, when her friend was struck by a car in a horrible accident and died. And Jean's telepathy was kind of like kicked in by the trauma of seeing her friend die. And she actually kind of like mentally linked with the other little girl and experienced her death. And this traumatized her, as you might expect. Um, and so uh, Xavier was actually brought in as an expert, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, child psychology and that sort of thing to, to help her, discovered her, you know, potential for power and uh, basically put mental blocks in her head to keep her from using her telepathy anymore because that had become, had become such a traumatizing thing in her brain. Um, he then also like discovered that like telepathy was not the only thing she could do, that she also had all, you know, telekinetic powers. And so he encouraged those uh, and began teaching her how to use those while kind of like hiding her telepathy from herself. Right. Um, and so this is why five years into the series, right, Jean finally kind of like overcomes those mental blocks and reveals that she can also do telepathy as well as telekinesis and becomes a kind of like much more powerful member of the team um, when that mental block is, is, is undone. Um, but that story kind of says that, you know, like Jean is actually the first student because all of her stuff happens well before uh, Xavier meets Scott. Um, but she's not made part of the X-Men. She's actually the last one to be recruited into the team. And which is why we see her uh, being recruited into the team in X-Men number one. So the relationship between Scott and Jean continues to, you know, kind of like float around out there for several years. Finally, in 1968, uh, Scott, you know, confesses his love to her and they begin having a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. You know, Warren kind of uh, gives up uh, you know, his pursuit and, uh, you know, acknowledges that Jean cares more about Scott than she does about him. And, uh, you know, he goes off to have other girlfriends. Um, and so the two of them begin a relationship. In 1968, also, once again, Thomas, Roy Thomas is the writer uh, at this point. We then suddenly have a revelation where Scott says, uh, by the way, I've been in touch with my brother. Uh, my brother's name is Alex. He's an ordinary guy. He's not a mutant, doesn't have any powers or anything. Um, but he was adopted from the uh, orphanage. We went to the orphanage together, and he was adopted, and I wasn't. And the main reason I wasn't was because of all of the you know problems that I was having, the headaches and everything that I was having because of uh, my powers starting to manifest made me a less desirable you know adoptee. Whereas Alex got you know taken by a lovely family, and he's living across the country, and I've been in touch with him. I just haven't told you all of this time that I've been you know doing this for the last few years. So 
this begins a story in which, uh, you know, Scott and Alex are getting together, uh, you know, both now in their late teens. Um, and we discover that there is another mutant supervillain who is called uh, the Living Monolith. And he has discovered that uh, he should be, his, his power should be stronger. He has some level of power, but his power should be stronger. And there is another person whose presence is in fact actually blocking him from getting his full power, and that person is Alex. And so, of course, he immediately kidnaps Alex to find out what the deal is with this guy. How come he's, you know, uh, uh, blocking my access to my full power? And discovers that they are both mutants, uh, and that Alex's power just hasn't manifested yet. But Alex's ability to kind of like absorb radiation is interfering with the living monolith's own power. So, the living monolith basically creates a suit that will block Alex's powers, allow Alex to kind of like control and access his powers and stop him from uh, influencing the living monolith's powers. This will all get explained much better later on, but this is basically all that is revealed at the time in the story. So the uh, X-Men have to rescue Alex when he's been kidnapped. And when they do rescue him, they discover that he has a cool new costume uh, based on the suits that living monolith uh, uh, built for him. And he in fact has the ability to kind of like absorb radiation from the world around him and then fire it in these destructive blasts. And unlike Scott, he's apparently able to control this very well. Um, and so he becomes uh, Havoc, right? Is the, the, the name that he takes on as a mutant. Um, he does not join the X-Men at first, but the design of the Havoc costume is really kind of cool and everybody kind of likes the character. So it's pretty quickly afterwards that he gets kind of, you know, like formally introduced to the team. Um, during that time, uh, Alex, uh, Alex kind of first formally joins the team during the whole Sentinels crisis story, the second Sentinels story, the, the famous ones with, uh, Neil Adams art that are amazing. Um, and he starts his relationship with Lorna Dane, uh, Polaris, who is at the time believed to be Magneto's daughter, joins the X-Men just in time, basically, for the X-Men to finally get canceled as a series, because it's been bumping along, uh, you know, it's it's seven or eight years in, and sales just are not enough to keep the um, keep the stories going. He and Polaris never really get much credit for being on the original team, I guess, because it can't canceled so... Uh, so so quickly so, after them joining, yeah. Yeah, the, um, and his costume, like you said, it's so um, striking. Uh, the Neil Adams version of it, that the solid black with the, uh, you know, with the little kind of the, the three prong helm, you know, outfit. Yeah. It's it's fabulous. It's a great look. Yeah, he really stands out among a lot of those early, not just X Men comics, but among a lot of uh, a lot of uh, those that time period comics. Right, and he has he doesn't get much to do because it's a pretty short stretch of time. Mostly, what he does is fight with Bobby over Lorna, right? right. I mean, that's kind of like the, his main, you know, like plot. Uh, uh, point going forward is that once again we've set up another romantic triangle within the team. So, yeah, he's a character that every once in a while a, a writer tries to come in and make uh, you know important again. But right, well, we'll get to lots more of him over the course of this. <laughs> He'll show up over and over again. So, absolutely. Uh, but yes, but the series gets canceled. Right? No, it's not really. You know, no, nobody misses it terribly. They show up a couple of times between you know 1970 and 1974. Um, just to kind of like remind people that they exist. The Beast has left the team at this point, goes off and has a solo series uh, in Amazing Adventures, and then joins the Avengers. 
right? So the Beast is now separated from the team and has become a much more popular character in a much more popular series, right, the, than the rest of the X-Men. So the existence of the rest of the X-Men kind of gets acknowledged. And I think there's like a couple of Marvel team-ups where they meet Spider-Man and stuff in that four-year stretch, but really they barely appear. And in 1975, Chris Claremont comes to Marvel um, and makes a proposal to them for a new version of the X-Men. And this is going to be a completely like redone team. The concept of mutants he thinks is really cool, um, but he wants to. There's he says there's no reason it should be four super white dudes and one super white woman, right? Like it would be interesting if this team was kind of global. If this team had a lot of like interesting weird characters on it from all over the world with all kinds of like weird mutations and everything, make it a little freakier, make it a little you know more wild, uh, and uh, you know we'll and and keep the roots of the idea of them being a school and the roots of like the idea that they're mutants, that they're not human, that they're separated from society and everything. And, you know, Marvel is delighted at this point to, uh, you know, to get to this submission and uh, Claremont first works with Len Wein um, who co-writes the first story, the giant size X-Men number one um, and Dave Cockrum who does the, the original art for a lot of them. And so this is the, you know, that giant size X-Men number one is the first appearance of Nightcrawler. It's the first appearance of Colossus. It's the first appearance of Storm. Uh, it's the first appearance of Thunderbird and almost the last appearance of Thunderbird. Um, and of course, it brings Wolverine, who has had one two issue appearance previous to this, uh, appearing in the, as an Incredible Hulk bad guy, basically, um, and who is not in those first two stories ever revealed to be a mutant, right? Like nobody had any idea about that part. It was Claremont and, and Ween who decided that he was a mutant. Um, and so that team comes together and we have the story in which uh, Chris, uh, Cyclops comes bursting back into the mansion by himself and reveals that uh, the entire team and this being the original team, plus Havoc, plus Polaris, but minus the Beast, because he's not on the team anymore, so it's the six of them, basically, had been sent by Xavier to investigate a mysterious island. And like the, the Cerebro had detected a mutant presence on that island that was incredibly powerful, and they went to investigate what it was. And whatever it was defeated the original X-Men and only released Scott, uh, you know, for unknown mysterious reasons but scott is the only, doesn't really remember what happened but he has you know returned to uh the mansion and you know xavier needs to help him rescue the rest of the team to do this of course xavier activates all of like the files of other x-men that he had been considering to form this new team so we bring in a couple of characters that have already been established as supporting characters banshee and uh, Sunfire both appear at this point, as well as all of these new characters. We send that team off to fight this, you know, this, this mysterious mutant, which is revealed to be the island itself, Krakoa. Um, and working together, they are able to, uh, you know, successfully free the trapped other mutants and, uh, you know, like basically blow the island into space. And then they all come back and now there's, you know, like 15 people in the X-Men. It's an enormous team. Um, so all of the original X-Men, except for Scott, decide to leave the team. They decide they're, they're done with their classes. They're done with their training. They are all, you know, reasonably expert in the use of their powers, and they don't want to be superheroes anymore. Um, Scott and Jean are still in a relationship, but they're not, you know, like fully exclusive even. They're not, you know, there's, there's kind of no plans to get married or anything. Um, so Jean goes to live in New York. 
And Scott is the only member of the original team to stay as the new team's leader and kind of like trainer and, you know, uh, as, as Professor X's, you know, kind of lieutenant, basically, on the team. And these guys become the new X-Men. Um, very quickly, this team is a smash hit, right? Like, it takes only a few months for people to, like, realize how cool these characters are and how great, uh, you know, Claremont's plotting is. And Cockrum's design is fabulous as an artist, and everything's this is this is a smash for 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 the X Men, uh, for Marvel. And in one of their very first kind of like extended stories, uh, the other old X Men get sucked back into the story briefly because they're actually fighting robot versions of the original selves and everything. It's kind of a complicated thing, but basically they are uh, they're 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 out in space, right? They're in a they're in a uh, satellite. And they have to pilot like the space shuttle back to Earth. And Jean is there, and she uh, she's with them. And they're like, "Well, it's the you know the radiation belts that we're going through for this. It's going to be too deadly. Nobody's going to be able to survive this." And Jean says, "I think I can survive this with my telekinetic powers. Um, and all I need to do is tele- uh, telepathically learn how to fly the space shuttle from the actual pilot, right?" And she, so she like absorbs all of the knowledge that he has about flying space shuttles. And then kicks him and Scott back into the you know protected hold of the ship and basically flies the ship down by herself. That's all we see at this point, right? They then crash the shuttle into Jamaica Bay outside of you know JFK Airport, basically. Um, and the next issue begins with them all kind of you know breaking out of the back of the shuttle and like managing to swim to the surface. And emerging with them is uh, a new version of Gene much more powerful with a way cooler costume who has now decided to call herself the Phoenix. And this is her, this is her, you know, new identity as a hero. And she becomes a member of this ongoing uh, X-Men team. Uh, Phoenix, once again, very popular as a character. And Claremont is clearly really into the idea of having a team. He's, he's discussed it several times, you know, kind of uh, just his, his point of it, which was that there had been a number of teams that had really cosmic heavy hitters on the team, and but none of them had ever been women, right? Like the Avengers had Thor and the Justice League has Superman, et cetera, et cetera. But like the idea that like there would be a woman on the team who was so much more powerful than the rest of the team was an interesting thing for him to have to work with for story details, right? Because there's certain stories that you just can't do anymore when you have a character as powerful as Phoenix on the team. It just doesn't make any sense. You're constantly having to, you know, take her out of the story in some way so that the rest of the characters can have something to do. Otherwise, it becomes a question of, like, why isn't Phoenix just solving all of these problems by herself? Um, It's the same problem that they have had periodically with Professor X, you know, who periodically needs to be cut back or knocked out or, you know, uh, injured or in some way taken out of the story so that the X-Men can actually do something cool. Um, so, you know, he's he's kind of like struggling with how to use her, but on the other hand, he loves the idea of her in general, and fans really like the idea. Uh, the next kind of like big plot point and the next revelation in the Summers family, the team travels into outer space. We meet the Shi'ar for the first time, and they do the whole McCran crystal story. And in this storyline, for the first time, we meet the Starjammers, who are this intergalactic band of like pirates and rebels who have been fighting the, you know, the evil leaders of the Shi'ar Empire and the you know, usurper who's on the throne. Um, and they are led by a human named Corsair. 
And in this story, uh, Phoenix and Storm learn the true history behind Corsair. Scott does not at first. He is not present when the story is, is revealed, and he actually won't learn it for several years afterwards. But they learn the entire backstory that Corsair is, in fact, actually Christopher Summers, and he is Scott's father. This is the plane crash, you know, that he survived the plane crash somehow. And so we learn the story was not that the plane actually crashed, uh, but that uh, Christopher and his wife, Catherine, and their young children, Scott and Alex, were uh, flying a plane. Well, Christopher was flying a plane. He's the, you know, he's a professional pilot. And they basically encountered a UFO, which damaged their plane. Um, and like a you know radiation beam struck the, the the plane and set it on fire. In order to save uh, the kids, Catherine basically like kind of attached them both to one uh, uh, parachute and pushed them out of the plane, uh, where they like fell and barely survived. Um, Scott's powers actually manifest uh, in a weird way and allow him to kind of like land more or less safely, even though the parachute caught fire. Um, and the damage that he suffers in this landing for a while was given as the reason that he cannot control his powers, right? Like that he had suffered brain damage on some level or something um, from hitting the ground so hard. Uh, and that was why his powers were like stuck in the always on position. Meanwhile, Christopher and Catherine had been abducted by, by these aliens who are revealed to be Shi'ar um, like royalty, basically. And the two of them are taken off back to the you know, Shi'ar empire to, to a distant world where Christopher is thrown in, you know, like prison, basically. He's actually sent to the slave pits, basically. While Catherine, uh, you know, of course, being a beautiful human woman, the, the woman, the, the, you know, the emperor, Deken of the Shi'ar, uh, falls in love with her, or at least in lust with her, and, uh, you know, assigns her to his harem. Um, Christopher, of course, will have none of this and uh, tries to escape to save his wife. And she basically gets killed in front of him. Deken has her killed. Uh, and she dies, you know, like right in front of, of Christopher. And so Christopher uh, dedicates the rest of his life to working with a bunch of other rebels against the Empire and getting Deken off the throne and having him killed in revenge for what he did to his, uh, to, to his wife. Um, once again, Jean finds this out and Storm is also present. So the two of them know. And Corsair says, you know what? I'm not ready to have this you know, encounter with Scott. Scott has grown up without me. Um, you know, it's maybe it's best that he doesn't hear this, you know, terrible, tragic story about how his mom died and everything. Uh, you know, if he's, he seems to be doing fine and I don't want to mess with him any farther. So he makes them promise not to tell Scott in what will be the first of a series of inexplicable decisions that Summer's members Summer's family members will make about like what they tell each other, <laughs> you know, uh, that's you know, kind of like the first awful decision is Christopher saying, you know what, I don't, I don't think I'm going to tell Scott uh, who I actually am. So our heroes return back to Earth, but now we know the backstory of Scott and Alex, and you know, like what happened to their parents and everything. As far as anybody's concerned, the story is pretty much done. Star Jammers will probably come back at some point, you know, but uh, let's do that. In the meantime, Chris Claremont is no longer. I mean, Chris Claremont is writing. Uh, the X-Men now with John Byrne as the artist, Dave Cockrum has left the group and, uh, and is no longer, uh, you know, doing the, doing the art. Um, and Byrne has brought, shall we say, a great many opinions uh, to the partnership with Claremont. And the two of them will fight all the time, but they fight 
early on on a level that really makes both of them better, right? Like the stories that they come out with by compromise are really better than the ideas that they were coming up with separately. And for a stretch, this is one of the best written comics around, um, despite the fact that there's a fair amount of tension between the two of them uh, over who's exactly in charge, you know? And they decide to do this story in which they're like, okay, we've done Phoenix. We've done, you know, Jean. She became super powerful and everything. Um, but we're tired of getting her out of stories. We're tired of getting her out of the way or coming up with reason for the rest of the team. What we're going to do is just have one big final blowout story in which she gets depowered and goes back to living an ordinary life in the suburbs. And that will be our resolution of like the Phoenix story, right? Like it will end with her being turned back into a normal person with no powers at all. And so they start doing the stories in which uh, um, the supervillain mastermind uh, like is, is manipulating her with illusions and messing with her head and the Hellfire Club wants to control her and that sort of thing. And they basically kind of seduce her into coming to like join an evil team basically and like encourage all of her baser emotions and, and you know, personality traits and that sort of thing. Um, and she becomes a version of Phoenix called Dark Phoenix. Now she is, you know, like a horrible killer. She no longer cares about human life and she's, you know, feels incredibly above us and everything, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and at one point in this story, as she is being Dark Phoenix and scaring the, the piss out of the rest of the team and just being generally awful, she flies off into space where she has, uh, you know, recently used up a great deal of her power and she, uh, needs to repower. So she basically reaches out to a nearby sun and destroys the sun and absorbs it to like use that sun's power to recharge her. And it's at this point that suddenly something uh, kind of like goes slightly wrong because Byrne puts into the art a thing, a piece that like he and Claremont had not discussed originally or had not discussed in any level of detail, which is that sun has a planet. And so there is a single panel in which it basically it says, you know, as their sun is destroyed, billions of aliens like, you know, look up into the sky and scream and then are silenced and die. And Claremont hadn't signed off on that, right? And he reads it and he's going like, yeah, hmm, wow. That's, she just killed like billions of people. That's kind of a big deal. Oh, well. And, you know, the two of them go on. He, you know, uh, he proves it and signs off on it without really thinking about it. And that, uh, the, the, you know, semi-finished work basically uh, goes to the editorial uh, department at Marvel for approval. And Jim Shooter takes a look at this. Uh, you know, it gets kind of like bounced over to him of like, are we sure about this? And Jim Shooter's like, she just killed billions of people. That makes her like one of the greatest super. She can't just get out of this at the end. She can't just, you know, like be forgiven, have this all be over at the end, right? There's no version of this in which we can allow her uh, as a character to just go back to living in the suburbs without ever facing any kind of like punishment or judgment for this. So he basically goes back to Claremont and Byrne and makes them rewrite their story. Uh, you know, like literally at the last minute, you know, of like kind of scrambling to replace all of this stuff. And so they rewrite the story in which uh, the Shi'ar return and demand that Jean be, you know, uh, uh, the, the, basically what they do is Professor X puts these mental blocks into Jean's head, which would have been the outcome of the original story and like chops her power level back. And at that point, the Shi'ar arrive and insist that Jean be put on trial for all of the terrible things that the Phoenix did. 
Uh, and they're like, you know, you don't understand. She wasn't in control. She was, you know, like uh, she was, you know, mentally unfit for, you know, for whatever. And the uh, uh, Shi'ar say, you know, sorry, too bad. She needs to be killed. And the X-Men challenge uh, the Shi'ar, you know, uh, superhero team to a, a ritual battle for her life and are losing, are in the process of getting like beaten up terribly when Jean's powers, the mental blocks that Xavier put in her head begin to crumble and she starts to turn back into full on Phoenix. And she's terrified of what she will do if she becomes Phoenix again. So she turns to Scott and says, I love you very much, I'm sorry. And then she uh, basically takes a you know weapon from the moon, basically where this battle is taking place um, and turns it on herself and commits suicide. This is a completely unprecedented event in comic book history, right? Especially in mainstream comic book history. A superhero just committed suicide, you know, on the pages of like comics that are being read by, once again, I mean, even Marvel's editorial thing thought to their average age of their reader at this point was around 12, right? And one of their heroes has just committed suicide. This is huge. This is a big deal. Um, it's a super massive press event. The New York Times is writing about it. All kind of stuff is going on about this. Everybody thinks they've told a, an amazing story once again. But Byrne and Claremont are both still kind of mad that they didn't get to do the version of their story they wanted to do. Claremont kind of gives in and says, you know what? That was actually pretty cool. That was super dramatic. And I, you know, the, the, the having the ghost of Jean Grey over this team for a while is a thing I can work with, right? Like, I will totally go with that. Byrne is like, dude. That's not, I, I'm not happy with how that came out. I think this is an inferior version of the story, um, you know, and I've got all kinds of like things that I'm thinking about, about how to do this. And Byrne begins kind of like agitating behind the scenes uh, about like ways to fix this, ways to like undo the story. And it will take him years to actually get to the point of doing it. In the meantime, uh, so now, you know, Gene is dead and Scott is devastated his you know the woman that he loved has just committed suicide in front of him this is terrible so he decides to quit the x-men um literally the next major plot line after this there's a couple of issues go by and then the next story is days of future past which is once again another famous uh incredibly influential uh gone over again multiple times uh you know like x-men plot basically in which we discover that the in a in one of the possible alternate futures, um, the uh, the the world has been taken over basically um, by the Sentinel robots that were created by the U.S. government to protect us from mutants after uh, mutants assassinated a U.S. senator. And from that future, the X Men of that time basically send a character backs and uh, Kitty Pride back in time to inhabit her younger body, basically, and stop that uh, assassination of the senator uh, from happening and stop their future from coming out. This is, of course, you know, by uh, Marvel standards, a horrendous misunderstanding of how time travel works. But nevertheless, they believe that this is actually going to work. And the character who's who manifests in this, the important part for our purposes here, is a character uh, named Rachel Summers. And it is very clear that Claremont and Byrne both intend for this to have been the child of Scott and Jean, right? So like, how, how is she alive? How did Scott and Jean have a child 
uh, in the future, who's a teenager, you know, at the time of the story taking place in this, you know, alternate future, like where, how did that happen? Where did that come from? Right. Kind of thing. But they don't explain it. They just say that she's there. And, uh, you know, it was her power that sent uh, Catherine Pride back in time to inhabit Kitty. The story goes on from there. And we're not going to go over every X-Men plot of the 70s here. So if you haven't read it, go look up the story because it's amazing. But for our purposes, the fact that Rachel exists in this future is like a mystery that is now hanging over, uh, you know, like the, the, the entire X-Men run. Scott returns to the X-Men in a set of stories about a year after that. Um, and uh, they have another encounter with the Starjammers. And this time uh, it is, uh, you know, Scott meets Corsair himself directly and they have a conversation in which Corsair reveals his story to Scott. Um, Scott is of course pissed not to have been told this before, but is delighted to, you know, like have his dad back, even though, you know, it's horrible, the things that happened to his mother and, you know, he gets over it and he is the one at the end of that storyline, he introduces Chris to Alex, uh, you know, and kind of like brings him into this, you know, understanding that like Chris is still alive and just living out in space. In 1983, we have a whole new, you know, like plot element, basically, which is that Scott is going on a family, uh, you know, trip. Basically, he's he's traveling to Alaska to a family reunion with a bunch of his relatives, and the pilot on the plane looks exactly like Gene. Is a woman who is absolutely identical to Gene physically, and he's stunned by this. Um, her name is Madeline Pryor. And Scott, of course, has to find out about her. And it turns out that uh, Madeline, um, amazingly, seemed to have survived a plane crash herself that took place on the very day that Jean died on the moon. And Scott's mind is blown by this. He's like, is it possible somehow that Jean has survived? Did she somehow manage to transform herself and create an entire new life or whatever? This story gets dragged out for some time in the background of like a bunch of other X-Men plots that are kind of like the main plots, but it's basically, you know, Scott trying to figure out who this woman is and falling in love with her uh, because she's basically exactly identical to the woman that he loved who died only a couple of years ago. Um, he, uh, he, eventually uh, there is a story in which they start a relationship he asks Madeline to marry him while she is still like kind of making up her mind whether that's going to happen. Mastermind returns and uses a bunch of his illusions to mess with them to make them think that Phoenix is back from the dead. Um, but, uh, you know, Scott believes that for a bit. But eventually, Mastermind is caught at messing with them and is defeated. And the whole story is, you know, apparently Madeline is just an ordinary person who just happens to look like Jean. That's amazing. And, you know, they get married. And they, he retires from the X-Men, and the two of them go off to, uh, you know, start their lives together. At this point, uh, Days of Future Past has become such a popular storyline and everything that Claremont returns to that and has Rachel Summers basically cross over to our universe in a second attempt to change history. And uh, this is now in uh, 1985. This is X-Men 199. Rachel comes to our universe and she is pursued by the Ultra Sentinel uh, Nimrod. Um, 
she interacts with the X-Men. She's, you know, uh, uh, trying to, like I said, she's trying to like manipulate history. Can't figure out why she wound up in the time that she did. She has, you know, a very impressive collection of powers that are very similar to what Jean could do. Uh, more powerful than her as Marvel Girl, somewhat less powerful than her as Phoenix, but still kind of like scarily powerful. Um, during this, you know, time that she's there, she meets Scott, but she hides her true identity from him. Um, later, uh, she joins the team of the X-Men and for a little while calls herself Phoenix, which Scott thinks is super creepy, uh, you know, and is, is kind of like angry at the team for like even allowing this to happen. But he's kind of like kept separate from her and most of Rachel's adventures with the X-Men are kind of, you know, he's not in. And so there's, they don't really kind of deal with the, 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 the friction between them. Madeline and Scott have a baby. They name this baby Nathan. Um, Scott decides when the baby is born that, you know, like he's been separated. He's helping the X-Men when the baby is born. She literally has the kid in a kitchen, basically. Um, and everybody is kind of wondering, like, why Scott is not being with his wife and his child. Like, why is he continuing to, you know, like hang out with the uh, with, with the X-Men? Um, and Storm basically challenges Scott for leadership of the team and beats him. Um, even though she doesn't have her powers at this point. And so she kind of like insists, Scott, you have a family now, you know, get out of here, go live your life, go be retired with your wife and your son. Um, during this time, Rachel uh, meets Madeline and kind of like helps her with the baby and psychically bonds with the baby. Uh, and so like, you know, Madeline now kind of knows who Rachel is. Um, though once again, we have still not explained how like Jean had a kid basically. Um, and the, uh, Rachel now is basically considering Nathan to be her baby brother, right? Because she still thinks of Scott as her father. So Scott kind of, you know, half-heartedly, uh, returns to this relationship and the two of them retire to Alaska very briefly. It's at this point that Byrne, finally, Byrne has left the X-Men, you know, years ago. Um, has become one of their biggest selling, uh, you know, author artists, uh, writer artists, basically doing the Fantastic Four is, you know, got enormous amount of influence at Marvel and convinces uh, like kind of Marvel powers that be of his plan to undo the death of Dark Phoenix and to basically say, you know what, we can undo this. Gene could come back because Gene and the Phoenix are not the same person. The Phoenix is not uh, a thing that Jean turned into. Phoenix is some sort of an energy being that encountered Jean in that fateful shuttle flight, um, was summoned to her, basically, took on her appearance, and then, uh, you know, crashed the shuttle into Jamaica Bay. And in fact, Jean is still in a cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay, having, like, been there all of this time, just, you know, floating on the bottom of the, of the bay basically right and that everything that happened after that basically happened to a different person from gene and this is burn's solution and the, actually it's it's funny because our, a little before this point they put out a marvel put out a, a, an edition um of the death of phoenix story in which it had with where they put back the original ending right where gene basically loses her powers at the end and then 
you know, having kind of like completed the artwork for that, basically, they then, you know, like put that out as a special, you know, $3 edition or whatever uh, uh, comic. And in the back of it, there is an extended discussion between all of the creators who had been involved with this story. And in that discussion, you can hear they never actually come out and say what's going to happen in those X Factor stories that I'm a, we're, we're about to go through. But you can hear John trying to convince Chris and Terry and a couple of other people from, from Marvel of his plan. He's like, no, wait, I have it. I have it figured out. Let me talk to you, dot, dot, dot. And then, you know, like the, the, the essay never explains what John is so like worked up about in the story. And it's a great kind of like inside baseball, uh, you know, uh, discussion basically of how things happen at Marvel. That's pretty cool. So Burn has this new you know solution in place, and that leads to a new series that they're going to call X Factor, which is something that we will cover in the next episode. Uh, so if you enjoyed this, please uh, join us next time where we will keep going through the Summers family and their complicated history. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker, and I'm Darren Watts. Uh, have a good night. Thanks for coming. <laughs>